0: Hello and welcome back to The Long Short. I'm Drew Nickel, and I'm joined today by Daniel Austin, the man I go to whenever I want to understand the murky world of financial regulation and politics in the U.S. More officially, Daniel is head of U.S. markets policy and regulation, Framer, and he joins us today from our Washington office. Daniel, welcome back to The Long Short and congratulations on the fancy new job title.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Drew. Happy to be back and talk one of our favorite topics. Absolutely.
0: So as you hinted there, today's episode is about the biggest event to happen in the US so far this year, which is, of course, the publication of the final text of the dealer rule by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, we last spoke to Daniel back on November 7th, and back then we predicted that the dealer rule was due imminently. Well, three months later, and we were right. The final text was released following a quite unusual Tuesday SEC Open meeting on the 6th of February. And just to say at the beginning, for anyone listening who doesn't know what I'm talking about, I encourage you to listen to episode 71 of The Long Short, or if you're an AIMA member, you can listen to a recent webinar via AIMER.org, and that'll bring you up to speed. For everyone else, this conversation aims to run through the amendments that came with the final text and explain why they matter, or don't, as the case may be, but more on that later. So Daniel, very simply to begin with, can you walk us through
1: the changes to the final text of the dealable versus the proposal, please? Sure, Drew. So the there were a couple of changes that were made um, from the proposed form. Um, one was that the quantitative standard was not adopted, and that would have required a person to register as a government securities dealer if that person, in each of four out of the last six calendar months, engaged in buying and selling more than $25 billion of trading volume in treasury securities. The other item that was not adopted was the first qualitative standard. This would have required a person to register as a dealer or government securities dealer if that person routinely makes roughly comparable purchases and sales of the same or substantially similar securities or government securities in a day and then finally the sec did not adopt this requirement to aggregate uh, their redefined term own account um, under the statutory language and the dealer rule that was included in the proposal um, that was another uh, problematic aspect of the uh, proposal that was ultimately not included Excellent. So just before we touch on the
0: aggregation point, could you just sum up what this means in practice for those that sort of aren't intimately uh, familiar with the text in the sense that my understanding was that these were admittedly the main issues in terms of the actual
1: substance of the rule? So those were three um, very (laughs) critical areas of the proposed rule um, that Ama, our advocacy, I believe, was very successful in getting eliminated from the final rule. Um, I think if you take a step back and you look at this final rule, the threshold issue remains that the final rule keeps private funds in scope and we fundamentally disagree with the fact that the SEC seems to think that private funds can be securities dealers or government securities dealers, we think the way that. The statutory language in the Exchange Act um, defining dealer and then the 90 years since the Exchange Act was passed into law sets out very clearly what dealing is and who securities dealers are. And that's somebody who is facilitating customer orders in a principal capacity. And since then, the SEC has also provided guidance where uh, if you're holding yourself out as a dealer or um, making two-sided markets... Those types of uh, indicators can, uh, or those types of that type of activity can be indicative of dealing, and we just as Ama's members, hedge fund members, as customers of broker dealers, cannot be dealers themselves, no matter what type of strategy they're executing.
0: Okay, so, so to summarize, there have been some improvements but the underlying point remains the same, that they just, even if there are less um, demands on them under this new rule, they they fundamentally shouldn't be there at all just because it's not appropriate.
1: That's correct, yes. And and we've been involved in uh, a number of uh, currently pending uh, enforcement actions um, in the 11th Circuit and then some other circuits uh, throughout the country Um, filing amicus briefs, trying to emphasize and highlight what we believe, and I think what um, has been the industry understanding for for 90 years of who or or what type of activity should be deemed securities dealing. Um, And I I think we at AMA just fundamentally disagree with the fact that the SEC seems to believe that private funds and hedge funds and – specifically, who are customers of broker-dealers, can be dealers themselves. Just think there's a complete disconnect there um, with how the SEC now has interpreted what it means to be a securities dealer versus what uh, I think Congress meant in 1934 when it passed the Exchange Act and then in the 90 years since.
0: I want to go back to the uh, aggregation point that you mentioned at the top. Could you just explain... Um, what this point means and, and, and how important it is that this component has been removed and, and what that means in practice.
1: Sure, so to set an example, the way it was defined is, say you have a, um, a multi-manager hedge fund and each manager is trading their own pot of money in um, a different type of strategy. Well, the way that the proposed rule was defined The way that the commission uh, outlined the proposed rule uh, vis-a-vis the own account definition aggregation point the activity of two independent decision makers i.e the pms would have to be aggregated to determine if any either the quantitative standard under the proposed rule or all three qualitative standards in the proposed rule had been met and if they were then that uh, that manager would have had to register as a Dealer or a government securities dealer, depending on which standard was was met, and I think the commission, um, I think, saw the light and, and eliminated that requirement from the final text, um, and because we believe that the way it was proposed, it would have captured, um, who knows, dozens, perhaps more than a hundred, uh, you know, types of of hedge funds,
0: and so. The the issue here is that there are some multi-manager and particularly quant firms that might be particularly exposed here. And although they've escaped a segregation point, there are still some lingering concerns about how the nature of their operations will bring them in scope of this rule. Can you just talk around that a little bit?
1: Sure. So the final rule, to give just a brief summary of it, ends up adopting two qualitative standards that were... Uh, both a part of the proposed rule um, with some slight modifications, uh, particularly to what the SEC calls the expressing trading interest factor. And the way they've defined that is a person will be be required to register as a dealer or government securities dealer if that person, quote, is regularly expressing trading interest that is at or near the best available prices on both sides of the market for the same security, and that is communicated and represented in a way that is accessible to other market participants. So, on its face, that seems pretty clear. But when you take each phrase or word uh, and try to really interpret what it means, and then you consider the SEC's dicta uh, in the discussion around that rule in the in the adopting release, uh, I think leaves more questions than answers. The it seems to be that the SEC will say, um, we'll we'll know dealing when we see it. Um, They don't, and things will be based on facts and circumstances determination, whether something's at or near the best price, for example, will be based on the facts and circumstances, at least that's according to the trading and markets director uh, during his comments during the open meeting. Uh, There's some other ambiguity around what it means to be the best available prices the Is that the NBBO? Is that another price? And then I think if you look at the, there's some language in the release that I think is, is worth highlighting, and that's that participants will need to assess the totality of their trading activity to determine if they're expressing trading interest on both sides of the market for the same security sufficiently close in time to have the effect of providing liquidity in the same security to other market participants. So the way that, what that's essentially saying is that market participants will have to look at every one of their strategies and do a one by one assessment and try to determine if trading activity in one market in one security is sufficiently close in time to say another independent decision makers trading in that same security in another market for example either on exchange or versus or on an ats so it's really uh it has a significant chilling effect, it seems like, on most, uh, not just multi-strat or quant firms, but perhaps those specifically, but I think just trading in general, particularly how broad that seems to be. The SEC in the release kind of highlights that, uh, and also the, the release includes no presumption that somebody is not a dealer even though they don't meet any of these standards. So if you're a market participant, You can't take much comfort in the fact that no matter what you're doing, unless you say you're a a long only manager, for example, whether the SEC may come knocking on your door six months after the fact and say, you know, that trade that you executed, that makes you a dealer under the second qualitative standard because you traded in Apple in the morning and then Apple in the afternoon. And that just that that seems a. a bit far-fetched to say that somebody is, is a dealer because they may be engaged in that type of activity.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you when you sort of read out the definition like that, that very obviously could mean dealer on the surface of it. But as I say, just in a, in a more general statement, anybody buying or selling in the same securities providing liquidity in the sense of participating in the market could easily be interpreted.
1: Correct. And there's no requirement in that second qualitative standard that the, uh, buying and selling activity has to be done, uh, simultaneously. So that kind of removes, say, for example, one of the, um, indicators of, say, of, of dealing of quoting two sided markets at the same time, um, you know, on both sides of, of the market. And by not requiring that there be some sort of element that the orders be expressed simultaneously, it really, uh, creates this uh, this very large uh, scope of activity that could ultimately be deemed to be dealing. It's, it's just it's very subjective um, and the SEC seems to have um, you know, reserved the right to, to make these you know, deeming people as dealers um, based on the facts and circumstances and, and kind of at, the, uh, at their own discretion.
0: So I think what this speaks to is quite a lot of uncertainty that's come in with this final text. I mean, usually, obviously, we're keen to get our hands on it because it should answer a lot of the questions and and put to bed a lot of the speculation, not least what we do on this podcast and and you, you and I have done in previous episodes. But in this case... It seems to be that we have now more questions than answers. And and I think that came through when we were reviewing the, the news coverage that came through immediately afterwards and, and since. But it seems to largely fall into two camps. There were those that seemed to be quite pleased with the revisions, uh, as I say, not entirely um, you know unreasonable, given that there was some quite egregious aspects of the proposal that are now gone. So fair enough. But equally, there are many others that seem to think that this is still a bad outcome for the industry. So for those that might have just glanced across the headlines at, at various major publications, can you just help sort of pass uh, what the difference is here between these takes and, and specifically where Ama has settled here?
1: Sure. I think if you if you take a step back and you look at the proposal, you put it on a scale of one to 10, Tim being uh, you know, the absolute. Worst, and one being, you know, that the the greatest uh, thing since sliced bread. I think the proposal was probably, I don't know, nine and a half, ten. We'll just we'll just round it up to a ten. I think now with the changes that have been made, it's probably more like a, I don't know, seven and a half, eight. Uh, and to your point, Drew, it it does leave more questions than answers. Uh, it, it, we're now forced to try to read the SEC's mind as to what they think on any given day could be dealing activity, for example, under that, that uh, expressing trading interest factor. Um, and managers are going to be forced to operate in this gray area of making an uh, assessment before almost each trade is executed to try to determine, okay, is this trade, if I execute this and then I have somebody across the floor is executing A trade in the same security and they did it two hours earlier is the sec going to say that that's regularly being done within the same day um and you know ultimately triggering that second qualitative standard i I think it's it goes back to the point i made earlier it's just going to have quite a chilling effect on i think a number of strategies and how managers deploy them
0: and and to your point, you you may not be able to answer this, but has there been any clarification on the threshold at which a firm, as you say, that that the PMs may well be considering this on a trade by trade basis? If this if this comes into play, is there any clarification around whether a single trade might you know again, if the SEC wakes up on a particular morning and 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 has a view on what is dealing and and when they report those trades, is is there uh, as I say some guidance on that at all could it be a single trade
1: I don't think it has it can be a single trade for example I mean you take you go back and look at the the expressing trading interest factor it's the regularly expressing trading interest that is at or near the best available prices on both sides of the market for the same security so there seems to be that there needs to be more than one trade uh, that has to that would trigger that um, second qualitative standard, but even so, again, the fact that there's no requirement that the trades be executed near simultaneously or simultaneously really leaves the SEC a lot of wiggle room to determine, you know, what type of time frame they're going to, uh, you know, apply to determine if that trading interest is being expressed on both sides um, of the market for the same security.
0: Got it. So the word "regularly" is a key one in that sentence there. Then, but uh, not a huge amount of comfort.
1: Right. So the way they, they define regu- regularly will apply to a person's expression expression of trading interest both within a trading day and over time. Whether a person's activity is regular will depend on the liquidity and depth of the relevant market for the security. So, by seeing that, you have to you really have to assess. Security by security, market by market, to determine is this being done within a regular tra- uh, trading day and overtime? Um, I think that's, that's has to be very concerning uh, for folks at our, at our manager members and you know, their legal and compliance staff, and then ultimately um, for the PMs when they hear that to try to assess well, is this deemed regular based on the liquidity and depth of the relevant market for the security? Um I think, I think that should give a lot of managers pause.
0: And this tees me up nicely for my next question, because the other thing that uh, came through from the SEC Open meeting for uh, anyone out there who, who didn't listen to the full thing uh, was uh, a little bit of confusion or, or disagreement about exactly how many hedge funds are going to be caught by this. And obviously, as you've alluded to a little bit there, it's unclear, and 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 maybe they don't think they will be, but they turns out they will be based on uh, their their trading over a particular period. The number, even from the SEC, has changed from the proposal to the final rule, and we have our own number, which we don't ultimately isn't the same number as what the SEC have. So, could you just talk us through how the SEC's number has changed, how they arrived at that,
1: and why we're unhappy with their uh, view? Sure. So in the proposed rule, trying to recall the numbers correctly, the SEC uses a limited subset of trace data to try to estimate, for example, the number of hedge funds that would be caught under the quantitative standard. And this was specific for treasury securities. And I think their words, they say at least one hedge fund would have been caught. In our uh, responses uh, to the proposed rule and our advocacy during the time, was we believe that it's probably closer to 50 that would have been caught by the uh, qualitative quantitative standards, excuse me. And then in the proposal, the sec estimated that I think only 51 market participants in total would be caught by all three qualitative standards. We think it would probably be at least double that. Um, but like you said, the sec scaled it back a bit and they have uh revised their estimate of how many hedge funds would be caught under the remaining two qualitative standards and they say it's about a dozen but again even though they use a little bit more data here like form pf for example to to inform their estimate we still believe that that number is inaccurate especially when you consider how broad that second qualitative standard the expressing trading interest factor uh, could be read I I think that's, you know, I don't think you can put a precise number on it because it is so subjective. Reading that term, Um, it could be triple that number. It could be quadruple that number. Um, If you take a very liberal reading of that that trading interest factor, um, it can certainly lead to many more market participants being caught than the SEC estimates.
0: And the crucial point here is that even if you think you might not be captured today or in a year's time, you may get dinged down the road and there's just no end to sort of the capture period. You you are sort of forever in jeopardy of being caught if you're one of those firms that sort of m- might stray into this definition of, say, regularly
1: dealing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no limiting principle to this rule. In terms of what the SEC says dealing can be, um, they claim to have further defined it here with these two qualitative standards. Yet there's no pres- they like I mentioned earlier they provide that there's no presumption under the final rule that even if you don't meet these two qualitative standards, that doesn't mean you're a dealer. Um, and the SEC has taken and as also as I mentioned earlier this literal interpretation of the exchange act definition of dealer that any person in the business of buying and selling securities is a securities dealer and they disagree that uh, with our uh, pushback on on their interpretation but if you take their literal reading to its logical conclusion that means any hedge fund any family office any pension any insurer you go down the list of market participants who are in the business of buying and selling securities there's there's no telling um you know what that would mean for for financial markets generally if the sec um can go knock on anyone's door at any given time and say oh you know family office hey insurer hey hey hedge fund you know you've been operating now for since you've been existence as as an unregistered dealer um and now you need to register um it it just doesn't we we don't think that that their interpretation in the courts, nor here uh, really with the final rule squares with the statutory text and the 90 years of you know how the markets operated since the Exchange Act was passed.
0: And just to take a pause to clarify here, um, the SEC uh, is using a slightly better way of, of calculating how many firms might be captured, but we're talking about firms
1: globally here, right? Right. They're... There's, the, the way that the rule is drafted, it applies to any person. The only two types of, I guess, entities or persons excluded from the scope of this rule are registered investment companies and persons who manage less than $50 million in total assets. And they actually don't define total assets. They don't use regulatory assets under management, which is a term um, that's used for, for Form ADV and, and for other purposes. So there's a lot of ambiguity even there as to w- what, how to determine that total assets figure. Um, but it does, like you mentioned, Drew, it does, it does apply very broadly to market participants who are trading in US securities and government securities.
0: The annual AIMA Next Generation Manager Forum 2024 returns on Thursday, 23rd of May in London's Mayfair district. Throughout the afternoon, discussions will focus on overcoming asset raising challenges, assembling the right board of fund directors, intelligent automation and more. The half-day event will complete with a networking reception open to all AIMA members, event delegates, asset managers and allocators. This is a prime opportunity to connect, learn and network with senior individuals at alternative asset management businesses. To learn more or to book your complimentary place, visit AMA.org. We hope to see you there. I want to challenge you here because I want to ask you about the compliance deadline and I would like you to just help listeners understand uh, the the peril that those in scope are under without using an expletive. Uh, which I know you'd probably like to do to describe how this should be, how this will play out. But could you just help people understand for those that, that, assuming they are in scope, what is ahead of them in the next, uh, well, 12-ish months to get themselves set up as a securities
1: dealer? Sure. So with prefacing it with that, I'm not an expert on broker-dealer rules or, um, you know, or Fender registration, but I guess I know a little bit to be dangerous, at least it when it comes to this topic. Um, but so the rule was passed on February 6th, adopted on February 6th. It has a 60-day effective date from its publication in the Federal Register. So let's assume that the rule is published in the Federal Register on on March 1. On May 1, then that means the rule will go into effect on May 1st. There's a 12 month compliance period so may 1 2025 is is kind of the, is the compliance deadline so if you're a manager and you are now reading this SEC release and trying to make sense of the two qualitative standards you have to go strategy by strategy and assess okay based on our reading of this do we think that we're engaged in Stealing activity as the SEC defines it here. And of course, that's not an assessment that can be done overnight, or perhaps even over a single week. But once you go through that, and again, it depends on how broad or how literal you want to read the uh, SEC's language or how conservative you want to read it to determine whether you would be captured, uh, you then have to go through some other hoops. Okay, So say you're running a quant strategy that's going to be captured by the second qualitative standard. Now, what do you do? I think there are a lot of questions that a a manager would have to have answered before uh, they proceed with um, trying to go down the path of, um, you know, running that fund or that strategy, excuse me, through a broker dealer entity, because I I don't think in the SEC, doesn't explain it. And we have talked to a number of very seasoned, practitioners in the space who really aren't sure how a fund itself would register as a broker-dealer. So if we push that issue to the side and you're running a quant strategy that you want to now run through a registered broker-dealer, well, what does that mean? You now have to file Form BD, which is very extensive. Uh, That process, you would probably want to talk to your LPs in that fund, uh, certainly before um, or deciding to stand up a broker-dealer to run that, that strategy through. And if I'm an LP, I'm asking a lot of questions. What does that mean for me? I mean, it, they, uh, a, a very large one is that broker-dealers are subject to the net capital rules. So if I have X amount of dollars in, in a fund, and now that strategy is going to have to be run through a broker-dealer, well, a certain percentage of my capital in the fund is going to have to be locked up for no reason. Um, I think that's a big problem. There are significant tax consequences for LPs. Um, by being a part of or being, I guess, invested, if you will, in a, in a broker-dealer, um, there are going to be limitations on t- into what IPOs that LP can uh, participate in. Um, and then the just ongoing compliance uh cost associated with with operating a broker dealer Um, those are just some of the concerns Uh, it's to try to do this process in a year or we'll call it we'll call it 15 months until may one and then the example i gave that seems like an incredibly challenging if not impossible undertaking to do um we've spoken to a number of uh, broker-dealer attorneys and standing up a broker-dealer, even on an expedited basis, can take up to nine, maybe even 12 months. And that's from the day you put in your paperwork. That's not counting all of the time it takes to do that paperwork, to register the legal entity. to, And then, of course, you're trying to hire the necessary staff that are appropriately licensed under FINRA it just seems like a woefully inadequate uh time period to try to uh undertake such a herculean task um of starting to uh, run a strategy through a broker dealer that had previously been run um through a fund there's all
0: those points are are very important but the point you just made there about the investors and and speaking to the LPs and and essentially uh, having hedge funds have to go to their investors and, and tell them what they're about to undertake from a, a cost and a resource perspective is a great example of all the downstream impacts of this rule and all the people that are impacted in a second, third order basis. And you know they didn't sign up to be investors in a securities dealer. They don't want their the hedge funds that they're invested in distracted and everything else coming through because obviously, you know, that cost is going to come from somewhere and is all time spent not doing the job that they're being told to do. And and of course, as you say, it's all that paperwork at a time when everybody's doing it or, or, or many, many firms are doing it, uh, which will be, you know, quite the job for FINRA.
1: Right. And I think um, going back to the point I made about no funds or a fund not being, I guess, not being possible for a fund itself to register as a broker dealer, there was a line of questioning questionings during the open meeting by uh, Commissioner Hester Purse to one of the uh, staff that was that was presenting, and she kind of was trying to get at this point about, well, are there any funds that are registered as broker dealers at FINRA, and. <laughs> The very long-winded answer that they gave was no. Some funds have affiliated broker-dealers, which you know some of our members have, and again, they're affiliated broker-dealers. It's not a fund operating as a broker-dealer. Uh, again, it just kind of underscores the the disconnect here with uh, who and what the SEC believes should be. Uh, reg- who should be registered as dealers, or what constitutes dealing activity?
0: I want to ask you about what's coming next. Uh, but before we do, uh, we have a new little segment in the long short since uh, since you last joined us, Daniel, where we uh, bring on one of our producers who asks one of those uh, fiendishly simple questions that uh, we sometimes don't uh, get the get the um time to ask so in this case uh, it is chris clifford who is is normally behind the scenes but we're bringing him into the light uh, this time to ask his question
1: thanks drew uh, i definitely understand the rule way more than i did now or at least thought what i did so thank you daniel for that this has been great but given the various technicalities around the wall that you've mentioned what is the one thing listeners should take away from this conversation that's actually a really good question. If the, for the one thing to take away, um, I would start, uh, probably internally, uh, with your legal and compliance team and probably maybe also with outside counsel going through each of your strategies and trying to determine based on either a, a liberal or conservative or moderate interpretation of the SEC's, uh, uh, the the two qualitative factors and kind of the language around them, whether you meet either of those standards. I think it's, it's going to be a sliding scale as to how you interpret it. Um, but I think that needs to, that process needs to start sooner than later. But again, even if you find some comfort in the fact that, okay, I'm not, I don't believe based on my interpretation of the final rule that I meet the qualitative standards, that there's no presumption in the SEC can essentially say, well, what you have been doing or what you were doing is dealing, even though it didn't meet these qualitative standards. Uh, So I I don't think managers can take a lot of comfort in that. And I'm not speaking for, as an attorney, and this is certainly not legal advice, but I would be surprised if any, uh, you know, external counsel is gonna be comfortable Providing some sort of written assurance that what you, um, for some firms and some strategies, what they're engaged in is not dealing activity. Um, Again, it's very subjective and is going to be left up to the SEC as to how they want to interpret and then ultimately enforce this final rule.
0: Thank you for that, Chris. That that actually is um, the best question to, to leave it on. And But but before we do, Daniel, um, well, first of all, I should say that, that actually the correct answer was make sure you're a member of AMA and have greater access to Daniel and the rest of our regulatory team uh, in the US and around the world so that you have access to all the resources that we're providing on this topic. But your answer was good
1: too. Well, to, to add to that, I will say that we did have a... Uh very thorough assessment of the final rule with uh, our partners on this rule at schulte roth and zabel um and to to go through it and they obviously are experts uh, they've, they've forgotten more about these topics than i'll ever hope to know so they're great certainly great people to consult um, but we had a webinar that's available for ama members um, we also anticipate doing a second webinar with them in the coming weeks in which we get more into the practical uh, interpretations and implications um, as folks have had time to to digest this rule and what it may mean for their funds and strategies.
0: And we will link to that webinar and uh, where you can find registration for the second webinar in the show notes. And we will also link to uh, two episodes we did of The Long Short uh, quite a while ago now, which expand on the uh, legal cases that were going on or still going on at the moment, which uh, AMA has submitted amicus briefs for uh, that Daniel mentioned earlier. But before we let you go, Daniel, what should AMA members be doing next? What is AMA doing now the dust has settled? You obviously mentioned the webinar there. I imagine there's a few other irons
1: in the fire. Right. So we're having a number. We're still going through the the final rule with a fine tooth comb Uh, we've gone through it now it feels like more than once um but the more you read it i think the more questions uh uh appear uh, and fewer answers as you go through it Um, we're having bilateral conversations with members uh, to discuss the final rule and how um, they're interpreting it and to try to take their temperature on where the pain points might be and also uh, having regular uh, committee meetings and the like to, to discuss the final rule. And I think there's um, a good bit of work to be done here by many in the industry um, as we try to go forward and try to really dissect what the, what the SEC uh, said in this final rule and then ultimately how it'll interpret it and enforce this final rule.
0: We will almost certainly be revisiting this topic uh, alongside the bevy of other SEC proposals and final rules that are coming out and due to come out in the near term. But that's probably a good place to stop for now. So Daniel, thank you very much for joining us on The Long Short.
1: Great, thanks, Drew. And thanks, Chris, for the, uh, the other question as well.
0: The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, ama.org. Thanks for listening.